Welcome to the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's podcast. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to every person. This Bible teaching was given in the tabernacle in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Visit oceangrove.org to learn how we are fulfilling our mission to provide people of all ages with opportunities for spiritual birth, growth, and renewal through worship, educational, cultural, and recreational programs at the Jersey Shore. So our speaker for our last day today is Chad Bird from Texas, an Old Testament scholar. So the whole week I felt like I was sitting in a college course, learning a lot, and um, I always wondered what am I going to say on Saturday morning to culminate this, and so you said something yesterday that really perked my attention. You said something that summed up how I felt about the whole week. You were talking about how you've been making connections and bridges from the Old Testament and the New Testament, from the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the quote you said is, in a way, perhaps you haven't considered. And I felt that the whole week you're presenting thoughts and concepts that I've never really considered it in that way. So I appreciate that and I thank you for that. And thanks for being here this week. Thank you so much, and thank all of you. I'm just gonna do a little microphone adjustment here. There we are. You hear me okay? Yes. All right, very good. So, first of all, thank you so much, all of you, for such a great week that uh, Stacy and I have had with you. The, the morning sessions have been fantastic for me because it gives me a chance to, well, to do what I love to do. <laughs> And any chance I, I get to love what I do, which is basically to talk about Jesus, is, is a welcome opportunity, whether it's here in Ocean Grove or whether it's other places around the country or whether, as it will be on Sunday, in my, my home congregation. So my pastor emailed me this week. He's like, hey, are you going to be here Sunday? Would you mind co-teaching something from the Old Testament? I was like, ah, I, I guess I could. <laughs> I, I suppose I could do that. But anyways, I, I welcome the opportunity to... Uh, to be with you this week doing what I do, and I pray that it's been an encouragement to you and that it's maybe not been an Emmaus Road experience, but maybe just a little window into what that conversation would have been like when Jesus was walking with his two disciples and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Because for me anyway, when I'm listening to someone else talk about the Old Testament, or I'm reading a book about the Old Testament, very often I have those little glimpses into that same Emmaus Road experience. I will learn something new, and all of a sudden the scriptures, they, they glow a little brighter because I'm able to see just with a little more clarity exactly how God from the beginning has been witnessing about his love for all of us. And I pray that's what's been happening with, with you this week. So my wife and I will be, uh, uh, will be on the road, actually in the air, birds flying home uh, this afternoon. So we pray that God will give us safe travels and we'll be back in our own beds uh, tonight, uh, God willing. So I want to mention a couple things to you before I forget. In fact, you couldn't see it, but my wife was like making finger signs to me like, don't forget. If you're interested, if, if, if this week has piqued your interest, let me put it that way, if this week has piqued your interest about learning more about the Old Testament, learning more about Christ in the Old Testament, if, 
Today, when we're going to talk about the Psalms, if today piques your interest and you want to learn more about how the Psalms are connected to the person and work of Christ, then here's some resources you can check out. The first one is 1517.org. That's the website. So I'm what they call a scholar in residence with 1517. 1517 is a Christian nonprofit. And basically what we do is we produce all sorts of materials with, with the goal of placing the good news of Jesus Christ before the world. We do that with podcasts. We do that with daily articles. We do that with our publishing house, which has published a couple of books that have been up here this week. We do it through a free online academy. It's called 1517 Academy. And one of the courses is Christ in the Old Testament. So if, if you want to hear more about this, then check that out. Or if you want to learn more about like apologetics, we have an apologetics course, and all of this is free. So check that out, 1517.org. There's a lot of, of, there's a wealth of resources there for the church. So that's one, 1517.org. Now within 1517.org, there's some some elements of our resources that are more directly connected to the Old Testament. One of those is a podcast that I've been doing for the last five years. Yeah, five years. It's called 40 Minutes in the Old Testament. We began with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and now we're in 2 Samuel, and we've covered every verse of every chapter of the Old Testament from Genesis 1 all the way to about the middle of 2 Samuel. And should God give me length of life... (laughs) One of these days we'll actually finish the Old Testament. I'm 51, so I figure I've got another decade and a half uh, before I'm kind of beginning to think about retirement. So maybe by then we'll wrap up Malachi. Everybody needs a goal, right? That's my goal. So 40 minutes of the Old Testament. I don't know how we have like, what, 200 episodes. There's a whole bunch there anyway, enough to keep you busy for a while. So join us in that conversation. If you're interested in the New Testament, 30 minutes in the New Testament is the, the twin to that. A lot of you know Eric Sorensen. He's preached here multiple times. He's going to be here uh, in a few weeks doing the same thing that I've been doing. So his podcast is 30 minutes in the New Testament. So they do the same thing. They go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the New Testament. Now, one more thing, and we'll get to the topic at hand today, which is actually connected to the topic at hand. So about maybe two years ago, something like that, I was approached by 1517 to ask if I would be, able, be willing to participate in a new podcast, but it's a different kind of podcast. It's a devotional podcast. It's called Hidden Streams, and I'm working with a guy named John Schreiner, which if any of you had been involved in kind of the Christian music world, you'd know his name. He's been the producer for the big, the big names among Christian music for the last two or three decades. He's a highly skilled musician. In fact, he's a, he's a pianist. I think he was, he came like the day he was born, he was like reaching for piano keys. He's, he's one of those, just a savant. He played for one of the presidents when he was five or six years old. So he's, he's a highly skilled musician. So he and I work together on these, on Hidden Streams. And we have a friend and colleague of mine read through the psalm of the day. So each of these is based on a psalm. He'll read through the psalm. Then I will offer a a five-minute meditative reflection upon that psalm. And then after that, we have original music composed by John and a friend of his that is going to reflect the content of the psalm as well as a meditation. It's a very very meditative, very 
peaceful, very reflective approach to each of these psalms. And our goal is to produce one of these for each of the 150 psalms. We have, I don't know, maybe a th- we're maybe a third of the way there now. But if you're a podcast listener, go to your podcast app, search Hidden Streams or 40 Minutes in the Old Testament or 30 Minutes in the New Testament, and you'll find all of that material there. Did I forget anything? Okay, good. Sometimes I can go a whole week and then I'll forget to mention these. I get so wrapped up in talking about whatever we're talking about that I forget some of these, uh, these other elements. Okay, so let me, let me take you back to a story from my own life as a way of getting to think about the, the book of Psalms. I've actually visited with a couple of you about my own past. Uh, if you're interested in Finding out more, you can, read, you can read Night Driving, where I lay out everything for you. But about, uh, oh, I suppose 12 years ago, something like that, I was at the lowest point in my life. No exaggeration whatsoever. So I had I'd been a, a pastor, I'd been a Hebrew professor, and after about five years of being a professor, I decided that I would choose the nuclear option and completely destroy my life so that I lost basically everything. Marriage, job, career, reputation, everything. Ended up moving from where I was living in the Midwest, where I'd been a professor, to Texas, so I could live where my my two young children were. And there wasn't much of a market for Hebrew professors in a small Texas town, believe it or not. So in order to put food on the table, I got my CDL, and I became a truck driver. And most of the truck driving jobs in the Texas Panhandle are connected to oil and gas. That's the big industry there. Everything rises and falls with the oil and gas industry. So I got my CDL, I got a job with a local trucking company, and I began working on the night shift. I'd go in about 6 o'clock, and I'd work in the evening, and I'd work till about 6 o'clock in the morning or later. So we're putting in 12 to 14-hour days most, most nights. So imagine me in the worst epoch of my life, alone, in the dark, in a truck cab. It's a recipe for disaster. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) But there I was, stuck with the very last person I wanted to be stuck with, me. So there I was, rolling over the hills of the the backcountry of the Texas Panhandle. And my job was to go to gas wells And gas wells produce gas, as you might expect, natural gas, but they also have two byproducts. One good, oil, and the other, you just have to dispose of. It's kind of a a dirty water, basically, that comes along with this. And my job was to back the truck up to these well sites and to drain off the water and then to haul it back to what's called the disposal, where it's pumped way back down to the ground again. And that's what I did, night after night after night. It was an easy job, especially once you kind of got to know the country. But it was also a hard job for me because I was stuck inside my head. I was stuck in a very, very bad place. And one night I was literally stuck. So it had snowed, it was in the winter, and during the day before the snow had melted and so now we have a muddy mess and many of these gas wells are down in low places so I'd filled up my tanker with this wastewater and I was trying to get out and about halfway up the hill the tires started spinning and they started spinning a little more and I dug in and it was over. Now when you get stuck in the backcountry in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night you make a call and you wait 
three, four, five hours before someone comes with a dozer and they pull you out of this place where you've been stuck. So here I am, it's about midnight. I'm stuck. I'm in the middle of a mess. I'm in my truck cab. I've got nowhere to go. I'm not sleepy. What am I going to do? Well, it just so happened that God in his grace had led me to carry something with me in the truck cab. It was a copy of the Psalms. See, years before I had invested heavily in the Psalms. They were kind of part of my spiritual discipline to pray them. But as I had with most of those things, I just kind of shoved it aside because number one, I was mad at God. And number two, I was convinced God was mad at me. And number three, if I was not quite sure that I was mad at him or that he was mad at me, I knew for sure that he didn't want anything to do with me because I was damaged goods, kicked to the curb, and everything was over between me and him. Well, that night, I had all this time, and so I turned on my cab light, and I pulled out that copy of the Psalms, and I opened it, and I began to just pray through them one after the other. And it was, it was during that night that I realized through these ancient, fiery, emotional words that I wasn't alone, that Christ was actually in that cab with me, in the darkness, hurting with me, feeling my pain and loneliness and despair, and somehow, in a way that only Christ can do it, bearing me up in the midst of all that loss and hurt and anger. And the most amazing thing about that particular night is I realized for the first time that here were the prayers I had been needing all along. See, I don't know if you spend a lot of time in the Psalms, but, this, but about 40% of the Psalms are what we call lament Psalms. Just think about that number for a minute. 40% of the Psalms are, in one way or another, lament Psalms. Now, I'm a hymn writer myself. So I, I, I love poetry, I love hymns, I love hymnals. But I guarantee you, I would wager big money on the fact that you can open up any hymnal from any denomination and start doing research on the kind of hymns that are in there, and you will not find one hymnal in which 40% of the hymns are lament. You're not going to find it. You'll, you'll find a few scattered here and there, but for the most part, we shy away from those for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is because when you pray a lament psalm, you're like watching to make sure there's no lightning about to strike you. Like did, you're like praying the lament psalm, and you're like, God, did I just say that? God's going to, he's going to take me out. You don't talk to God that way. I mean, I was raised in a, in a, in a church-going family. We were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. I mean, we were, we were always in church. Uh, and, and I learned the etiquette of prayer. You're nice to God when you pray, and you say all the right things, and you're respectful, and you say please and thank you, and you're welcome. And then you always say amen, and you, and you walk away. And you're, but you're, you're not going to speak to God like with honesty or anything. You don't want to be like blunt. You don't want to say to God, look at me. You don't want to say to God, why? You don't want to say to God, how long? You don't want to say to God, 
Are you asleep? Don't you care? Or one of the Psalms. One of the Psalms ends, (laughs) Just leave me alone so that I can have peace before I die. Any of you pray that way? If you pray the Psalms, you do. The Psalms are unabashed about speaking to God with just brutal honesty. Saying, this is where I'm at. This is what I feel. This is what I'm going through. These are my, these are my emotions. And I'm just going to kind of open it up and just lay it all out there before you, God. And what does God do? This is the amazing part. What does God do? He listens. He listens. He doesn't interrupt us halfway through and is like, stop. I've had enough of that. Quiet. Shut up and, and leave me alone. No, he listens. In fact, here's the, here's the real amazing part. Who gave us these prayers to speak to him? God. Yeah. So it's like God wrote these prayers. He co-authored them like we talked about a few days ago. He co-authored them through Solomon and Moses and mainly David. So they are God's words to us that become our words back to God. It's one of the beauties of the book of Psalms. God gives us his words, and then we echo those words back to God. So God is basically saying to us, here's how I want you to talk to me. Here's, Here's the language of prayer. None of us were born speaking English or whatever your native language might be. None of us were not, came out of the womb delivering some kind of oratory. We, we all had to learn how to speak. And we learned that by doing what? Mom and dad or brother and sister, whoever they talk to us, and then we echo back, right? That's how you learn language. You echo back what is spoken to you. That's the book of Psalms. Our father says to us, hear these prayers, and we echo them back to him. Now, some of these prayers make me nervous because they are so bold. They are so kind of in in your face. They are not the kind of prayers that we are accustomed to praying. They're fiery. They're bold. They're raw. Some of them are just like bleeding nouns and verbs. You can just, you can feel the angst the pain, the despair in the psalmist. And in that way, they're a perfect prayer gift to us because that reflects very often where we are in life. Now, you might be saying to yourself, yeah, but I'm kind of happy right now. <laughs> why would I pray a lament psalm? I mean, I'm, everything's going pretty good for me right now. Why, do, why would I want to lament? Well, keep a couple things in mind. Number one, you're never praying just for yourself. You're praying for the whole body of Christ. So you know, we, never pray, we never pray as individuals. It's one of the reasons that when Christ taught his disciples how to pray, he didn't say, when you pray, say, my Father. He said, when you pray, say, our Father. So prayer is always communal. Whether you're by yourself physically or you're in a group, you're always praying for yourself as well as for others. So when you pray the, book, when you pray the Psalms, even the Lament Psalms, you're praying for everyone. And here's another thing to keep in mind. And you all know this. Anyone who's lived more than five or ten years knows this. That if things are going great right now, they're not going to last. I mean, come on. If, any, if that doesn't reflect any of your lives, we need to talk. Because I need to learn what the secret is. 
I mean, how you maintain this just like beautiful, happy, wonderful, joyful life all the time. No, we, we all know that life is full of ups and downs and unexpected things. You know, tragedies happen. Things happen that we never foresaw. And so there is going to come a time when, yeah, lament is exactly what you need to do. And what a, what a way to prepare for that. You are, as it were, training your soul by praying the lament psalm so that when the time for lament comes, you already know the language. You can already speak. Now back to me in that truck cab. That night I prayed through these psalms, many of which were lament psalms, and I could hear the voice of Jesus praying with me and my voice praying with him. I was no longer alone, and I learned, I learned the language of the languishing. I learned the language of lament, which is exactly what I needed at the time because I didn't know how to talk to God. But now I knew how to talk to God. And I knew how to talk to God because God had given me these words to say back to him. So for me, it's no exaggeration to say that the Psalms saved my life. No exaggeration whatsoever. The Psalms saved my life because they were that glimmer of hope in the midst of the, the dark, cavernous existence in which I found myself. And that glimmer of hope grew a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter. And the Psalms were the means by which God eventually pulled me out of that cavernous depth into which I had, into which I had fallen. And so, because of that, as you might expect, the Psalms are very important to me, as they have been to almost every teacher and leader and Christian throughout the ages. The Psalms are God's gift to us, whereby we are enabled to speak, to sing, to praise, to lament to, to our Father. So I want to talk about the book of Psalms today, and I want to talk about the various kinds of Psalms, but above all, I want to talk about how the Psalms, while they are our prayers, and while they are also the prayers of the church, the Psalms are at the same time the prayers of Jesus. Now, we know this if we know anything about the life of Jesus himself. Jesus was not a Gentile. He was not born an American. He's not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American. Jesus was a Jew. Sure, he was born of a Jewish family. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He went to synagogue. He went to the temple during the festivals. He was a Jew, and so he did what all Jews did. And one of the things that all Jews did was they prayed the Psalms. So if Jesus is in synagogue, and that day they're going to chant Psalm 2, or they're going to chant Psalm 23, or they're going to chant Psalm 150, or whatever it is, he's going to sing. That's what you do when you're in the synagogue or when you're, when you're at temple. And as I think I mentioned a few days ago, chances are every Israelite knew the book of Psalms by heart, or pretty close to it, because these were their songs. I mean, most hymnals have hundreds upon hundreds of hymns. And even though I've never done this, one of these days I'd like to just kind of sit a group of people down and just start singing some hymns. And I would, I'd be shocked if we didn't get to 150 hymns and everybody knew pretty much the words by heart. We, we did that this morning, right? Those were two commonly sung hymns, and you could just keep multiplying that. And when you add to that all of the other secular music we might know or, or commercial jingles, we probably have hundreds if not thousands of songs memorized, and we just don't know it. So for the Israelites, the 150 psalms, this would have been part of their musical repertoire. They just, they just knew these. They knew these 
by heart. So Jesus prayed these as a faithful Jew. But he also prayed them in a unique way. Because Jesus is the voice behind all of the Psalms because he is what we might think of as the representative human. He is the man. He is the one whose voice is behind Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. Now, you might be saying to yourself, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you up to a point, but there are some Psalms I can't quite imagine Jesus praying, like Psalm 51. Psalm 51, of course, is the one that David wrote in the aftermath of David, of Uriah and Bathsheba and that whole mess. Or some of the other penitential psalms, like 632, 38, 51, 102, 103, 130, all of these, all these particular penitential psalms where what's happening? The psalmist is confessing his or her sins. So how could those be the voice of Jesus? We're going to get to, we're going to, get to that. But my, what I want to kind of put up front is that, in, in my estimation, every psalm, in one way or another, has behind it the voice of Christ. Now, before we get to those, I just want to kind of think about the Psalms in general. One, anyone know the Hebrew name of the book of Psalms? What it means or the word itself? It's Tehillim, which means, well, often translated praises. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute in connection with what we just said about lament. If the book of Psalms are called praises, and almost 40% of these praises are laments. That's a reformation of what we think about praise is. We usually think of praise as, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. That's praise. Well, guess what? Another definition of praise is, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall I take counsel of my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will you forget me? That's a praise, at least according to the name of the, of, of the book of Psalms. Praise can take many forms. It can pray, take the form of lament. It can take the form of, of thanksgiving. So the whole book of Psalms, 150, are in one way or another a kind of praise from, we, from us who are needy to the one who can deliver us. And then think too about how influential the Psalms were in the life of Jesus. Did you know that every event, every major event in the life of Jesus in one way or another was connected to the book of Psalms? His birth, the announcement of his birth. Are you familiar with the Magnificat, Mary's song? Well, if, 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 if you read the Magnificat, Mary is basically taking Hannah's song from 1 Samuel, and she's replicating that, and she's also drawing from all over the book of Psalms. The Magnificat is like the whole book of Psalms condensed down into one particular psalm. So when Mary sang the Magnificat while Jesus was still in utero, he's already hearing the book of Psalms. And then the visit of the Magi is reflected in Psalm 72. You fast forward, of course, to the last week of the life of Christ, and you've got references to the Psalms all over the place, including when he rode into Jerusalem. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. When Jesus is on the cross, he speaks his seven words, remember? 
these, these, the seven last words, three of those are direct quotes in the book of Psalms. One of these you know. In fact, you probably know it in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same with thy thirst. And then same with his final words, into your hands I commend my spirit. All three of those are drawn from the book of Psalms. To his dying breath, the Psalms were on the lips of our Lord. These were the chosen means by which Christ gave a confession of who he is and what he was going through, and above all, that he was faithful to his Father unto the very end. Into your hands I commend my spirit. The very last words of our Lord are the very words of the book of Psalms. So from beginning to end, that's what's going on. And of course, the Psalms are scattered throughout the New Testament. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He writes to the church in Colossae to do what? I want you to sing hymns and songs and spiritual, spiritual songs. Of course, included in that would have been the book of Psalms. This is the, this is the core hymnal of the early church, as it would have, because the early church was just the early Jewish church. We're no Gentiles in the, in the, in the first few years of the, of the church unless they had converted to Judaism. So for the, for the early Jewish church, when, when uh, somebody said, let's sing a hymn, everybody knew it was going to be from the book of Psalms. So in the early church, Acts chapter 4, for instance, when Peter comes out of, of jail, they get together and they sing a couple of psalms. The church in Ephesus and Colossae I just mentioned, they're singing psalms. And of course, we still did it today, right? What, what, was our opening, what was our opening psalm? 113, right? I think I remember right. 113, that's the, way, that's the way we started out. So the church's life today, the life of Jesus, the life of the early church, it permeated with the psalms. In fact, here's a, here's a little detail for you. So at the second council of Nicaea, this is one of the early church councils, in 787, <laughs> I, like to, I like to point this out to church leaders sometimes. So in 787, at the Second Council of Nicaea, one of the many decrees that was passed was that a man could not be elevated to the level of bishop unless he had the Psalter, the Book of Psalms, memorized by heart. I think that would probably reduce our church leadership positions significantly <laughs> these days. <laughs> so you had, to, you had to have the whole Book of Psalms memorized if you were going to be a bishop. I mean, obviously, you can't be a bishop unless you have the book of Psalms memorized. Come on. I mean, at a minimum. So that, as it goes on to say, so that they could use the Psalms to instruct those pastors who were under their, their charge. So the book of Psalms, they've been, with, they've been with the life of Israel. They've been with the early church. They were so much a part of the life of Jesus, and they're so much a life part of the, the life of the church today. In fact, I think I may have said this the other day, but if I didn't, let me say it now, and if I did, I'll repeat it. So if you, if you trace all of the quotes of the Psalms in the New Testament, so all the time the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament, or if you look at all of the maybe echoes and allusions, maybe not direct quotations, but echoes and allusions of the book of Psalms, or quotations of the book of Psalms in the New Testament, all 150, save 22 of them, so except for 22 Psalms, Every single one of the Psalms is either quoted, echoed, or alluded to in the New Testament. It's the most quoted 
Old Testament book in the New Testament. In Psalm 110, the one that starts out, my Lord said to, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that is the most quoted chapter from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, all of this is just really intended to impress upon you just how central the Psalms are in the church's life throughout the centuries. And one of the reasons I, I want to say that is because, at least in my experience, and I don't know about your, your, your church circles, your own traditions, but in my experience, the book of Psalms really does kind of get shelved, kind of gets, gets, gets ignored more than it should be. I think that the Psalms should be central in pastoral care. I think the Psalms should be central in the singing of the church. I think the Psalms should be, should be central in our own lives as individuals, in our devotions. And ideally, we, we, we pray these day after day after day until they can just kind of become part of us, part of the way in which we speak back to God the words that he has spoken to us. Now, let's look at some examples of how the Psalms are connected to the person work of Christ, and maybe you get a few insights along the way. Let's start with one. It, it's not a very well-known psalm, uh, so you might have to, to look it up. It's Psalm 23. Most people are not as familiar with that as maybe Psalm 119 that you all have memorized. Psalm 23. Uh, let me tell you three kind of cool things about this particular psalm, and then we'll connect that to the, to the person and work of Christ. The first is this. Psalm 23, if you count up all the words in Hebrew, has 55 words in it in Hebrew. I don't know how many are in English, depends on which translation you're using, but there's 55 Hebrew words in Psalm 23. Now, if you look at the first half, the first 26 words, and if you look at the second half, at the next 26 words, do the math. How many words do you have left? 26, 26, 3. Okay. So if you're reading along, Psalm 23, so on and so forth, you say those first 26 words, and then you're going to come to the very center of the Psalms, the very center of Psalm 23. So you get past those first 26 Hebrew words, which interestingly all talk about God in the third person. It doesn't say, my Lord is my shepherd. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. So there's no like direct address to God in that first half until you get to the very center. And you've got three words left, 26 beginning, 26 ending. The core of this psalm are, for you are with me for you are with me the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters he restoreth my soul he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for thou art with me three words in, in Hebrew for thou art with me. We've mentioned more than once that God is our Emmanuel. He's the God with us. I'm not going to be afraid. For thou art with me. 
And I say with me, I mean like right beside me. Or in the, in the prayer of St. Patrick, Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ behind me, Christ in front of me, Christ to my left, Christ to my right. He envelops me above and below, left and right, in front and behind. He is the God who is with me, in me, above me, below me, surrounding me, upholding me. That's the kind of Lord that we have. And so the very beating heart of Psalm 23 are those three Hebrew words. For thou art with me. Another cool thing about Psalm 23. So I, I, I rarely criticize English translations because I never want people to get the impression that they can't trust the English translation. Right? So I, I never want to do that. But what I do want to do sometimes is take a particular translation and say, mm, yeah, but there's, there's a little bit more to that, that we can, we, can, we can take this and maybe we can polish it up a little bit and give you a little bit different perspective on that. So that's what I do with, with, with one of the verses at the very end. So it goes on to talk about how God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil, our, our cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me well yes and no so when you hear the word follow what do you think of comes after yeah so if I'm walking along the street and somebody's behind me they're following me okay yeah now what if I were to say I'm walking along the street and somebody's chasing me does that give you a little bit different perspective Okay, yeah, somebody's following me. I'm not really, really concerned about it. I mean, if somebody's chasing me, let me use a different word. What if somebody is, like, hounding me? Or, another word, pursuing me? Or in a, in, a, in a negative context, if I say I'm walking down the street or I'm living my life and somebody's persecuting me, I mean, they're coming after me. That's a little different connotation than follow, isn't it? The Hebrew verb that's used in that particular verse in Psalm 23 is radaf. To radaf, okay, we can translate it follow, but I think that's kind of a milk toast translation. If you really want to capture the essence of what's happening here, it's goodness and mercy chase after us. They radaf us. They pursue us. They're hot on our heels. We're not getting out of their sight. There's no getting away from God's goodness and mercy. It's not following us like some good little puppy dog. It's chasing us like a celestial stallion. It's on our heels and it's not giving up. Goodness and mercy of God don't trail behind us just to see where we might go. They're on our heels constantly, chasing us, pursuing us making sure that we don't get far from where they are. Now, isn't that a different perspective? The goodness and mercy of God, they're right there with us. They're chasing us down. It's like you, you're probably familiar with the, the poem, The Hound of Heaven. Maybe you're thinking of that when I'm, when I'm talking. Yeah. yeah, The Hound of Heaven, is, he, he's chasing him down the, the labyrinthine, labyrinthine uh, ways of life. You know, he tries to run away. Hound of heaven's chasing him. He tries to hide there. The hound of heaven is chasing him. The hound of heaven is not going not to give up. 
That's what was going on in my own life back in, the, back in the, the, the oil field days. I was trying to hide from God. I was running away from him, and he was radothing me. He was chasing me down. He was pursuing me because the goodness and mercy of God, that, the goal of the goodness and mercy of God is to get us into the waiting arms of the Father. It was the goodness and mercy of God that chased the prodigal son all the way into the, foreign, into the, the faraway country and then chased him all the way back home to the, cele- the celebration, the barbecue that his father threw on his behalf. And it's the goodness and mercy of God that chased us all the way home. So the beating heart of Psalm 23 is, For thou art with me. Radoth is pursue or chase. The goodness and mercy of God chase us. And then one more thing about Psalm 23 that's kind of cool. So God does what to our soul? Restores. He restores our soul. In Hebrew, the word for turn, return, restore is shuv. You could spell it S-H-U-V or U-V-E, shuv. Shuv, turn, return, restore. Now, interestingly, I love this about this particular Hebrew word. It's, It's the word also for repent. So when you repent, you shuv, you turn, you return. But here's the real fascinating thing about this. Most of the time, when that particular word is used and it means repent, guess who's doing the action? You? Nope. God. God is shuving you. Or we could translate that God is repenting you. Oh, so you thought it was you who repent? Well, it is. But guess who's doing that in you? God. God is the one who is repenting you. He's restoring you. He restores your soul. He repents your soul. He brings you home. Did the lost sheep check his GPS on his iPhone and figure out how to get back to the shepherd? No, he's probably holed up somewhere thinking he was going to be wolf's supper. There's no way he was getting back. The shepherd looks for him. The shepherd brings him home rejoicing. God brings us home. He restores our wayward souls. He repents our wayward souls. He shoves us. He brings us back to himself. We repent. Amen to that. But just like we believe, amen to that. But the gift of faith comes from God. The gift of repentance comes from God. We, you know, we always like to think that we need to have a little bit of, you know, we need to have some skin in the game when it comes to salvation. We need to, we need to do something, right? Give, give me something to do. And God's like, okay, you're going to be doing it. You're going to be believing. You're going to be repenting. You're going to be confessing. You're going to be doing all that. But guess, guess what? It is I at work in you who am actually bringing this about. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Salvation is a gift. He restores our soul. Of course he does, because the goodness and mercy of God are pursuing us. They're bringing us home. And the God who chases us, who repents us, is the God who is with us, Emmanuel. And who's the whole psalm about? Any of your churches have what's sometimes called in some traditions Good Shepherd Sunday? No? In some, in some traditions, they have what's called Good Shepherd Sunday. It's a Sunday we have readings from Ezekiel where he talks about the good and bad shepherds. You have John 10 where Jesus is the good shepherd. The sheep know his voice. And Psalm 23, of course, is always the psalm of the day. 
And so you have, if you, look, if you look in the history of hymns, there's all kinds of hymns that are written based on Psalm 23. You have one clear message. The shepherd, the Lord who is our good shepherd, the one who is with us, the one who pursues us, the one who brings us back to himself is always Christ himself. So the, the psalm begins, Adonai ro'i, the Lord is my shepherd. We could just simply translate it, Christ is my shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is my shepherd. He's the one who leads us into these quiet waters, who restores our soul, the one who is with us. Now, Psalm 23 is pretty easy to make the Jesus connection, right? So he's our, he's our good shepherd. Let's think about some other psalms, too. See, go to the very first psalm. Very first psalm. And the very first psalm, in a way, is kind of establishing the the thematic pattern that you're going to see throughout the whole rest of the psalms. So it starts out, Asherei Ha'ish, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, there's something you've got to think about with, with regard to this. It doesn't say blessed is the human being. Ish doesn't mean human being. It means man. Usually, it's in reference to a specific individual. Blessed is the man. Now, I want, to, I, want to, I want to do something here because this often happens in the Psalms. So, you, Psalm 1, and now look at Psalm 2. So, Psalm 1 starts out, Ashrei Ha'ish, blessed is the man. Now, you go to the very end of Psalm 2, and somebody read that last verse of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The same word for blessed in, in Psalm 1-1 is the same word for blessed at the end of Psalm 2. Notice how there's a beautiful bookend here. So Psalm 1 starts out by talking about blessed is this man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or, or stand in the path of sinners or seat in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he's going to be like this tree planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in season, its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, is, it prospers so it's talking about this guy, this ish, this man who does this. Does that describe any of you? Are there any men here who never, never you know, sit with the scoffers or, or walk in the way of the wicked or, or your, your delights in the law of the Lord and you meditate on it day and night? Any, any of you match that description? I certainly don't. I might try, but I always fail. It's, it's what I'm striving for, but... It doesn't describe me. Who does it describe? It perfectly describes Christ, which is why if you go back to, for instance, St. Augustine and his explanation of Psalm 1, or if you look basically at any commentator throughout the history of the church, they all say the man is Christ. Now, of course, in Christ, we strive to do these things, right? Meditate upon his word. We strive not to, you know, sit with the wicked and do all those things that Psalm talks about. Yeah, but the blessed man of Psalm 1 is Jesus. Now, keep moving to the end of Psalm 2, and all of a sudden, what do we have at the end of Psalm 2? Ashrei, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see the move from singular, blessed is the man, to plural. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now look at the rest of Psalm 2. Who's the him? The son. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I said to him, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Psalm 2 is all about 
the anointed son of the father, the one who establishes the king at Zion. So Psalm 2, without, without any reservation whatsoever, has always been said by, by Christians to be about, about Jesus. And it's quote, Psalm 2 is quoted all over the New Testament in reference to Jesus. So there's no debate about whether Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's all about the anointed one. Even the word Mashiach is used there. So he is the Messiah. He's the son. He's the king. He's the one that everyone is blessed who takes refuge in. So Psalm 1 starts out talking about Jesus. So the very, the very opening of the book of Psalms places before our eyes our Lord Jesus Christ, that blessed man. And then Psalm 2 ends by saying, you want to be blessed too? You want to be blessed? Take refuge in him. He is your refuge. He is the one who's going to give you everything that the Father wishes you, wishes you to have. Now, let's jump to some of these other psalms that you might not be so comfortable thinking about Jesus praying. And I want to, let me look at my time here. I'm almost out of time. So if you look, for instance, at Psalm 41. Psalm 41, kind of toward the end, talks about he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Okay? He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? It's in reference to Judas. If you look in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 41 as being fulfilled in Judas Iscariot. He who ate my bread, specifically it was the, 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 the meal they had just celebrated, has lifted up his heel against me. He's kicking against me. He's... he's basically putting a knife in my back. So Psalm 41 is about Jesus, right? Jesus quotes it as ful being fulfilled in himself. Yeah. Well, go a, go a few verses prior to that, and guess what? The psalmist is confessing his sins. So Psalm 41 is about Christ. How can Christ be confessing his sins? Is Jesus sinless? Sure, yeah. Without a doubt, he, he has no sin of his own whatsoever. But what has Christ done for us? He's taken on our sin. You know, the high priest, when he walked into the temple, he was wearing the tribes of Israel on him. He had the, the, the gems on his breastplate. He, on each shoulder, he had six and six. He, he was bearing Israel in his own person into the presence of God. Christ, our high priest, carries humanity on him when he goes into the presence of the Father. Sinful humanity. Every lamb, every ox, every goat that was sacrificed, they would place their hands on the head of that and confess their sins, and so this animal became the sacrifice for those sins. And, of course, Paul says what? He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the reason that Jesus can pray Psalm 41, the reason this is his voice is because, not because he has sin of his own, but he's got all ours. And guess what? If he's taken our sin on our own, it's not yours anymore. You can't claim your sin. Jesus took it away. You're like, Jesus, give it back. He's like, nope. No, really, I want my sin back. Jesus, no, I took it away. It's not yours. It's mine. And here you have my righteousness. I take your unholiness, I give you my holiness. I take your death, I give you my life. It's the great happy exchange. Jesus takes all the bad stuff off of us, puts it on himself, takes all the good stuff off him, puts it on us. 
That is what's happening in the life of Jesus, of course, especially on the cross, and that is reflected in these psalms where Christ is the one who prays really our prayer of confession in which he takes our sins upon himself. So when you're praying through the psalms, whether it's Psalm 1, whether it's Psalm 150 or 51, whatever it is, you're hearing the voice of Jesus. You never pray alone. He's praying with you, in you, alongside you. And whether you're reading Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Joshua or Judges or Zechariah or Malachi, these are the books that are about our Lord Jesus Christ. And one way or another, he is the fullness and he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. So you can write on top of every page of your Old Testament, this is about Jesus. It's about the one who loves us enough to come and be with us the one who loves us enough to take all our sin and death and uncleanness and shame away and to give us in its place all of the good stuff that he has and that he is. And I pray that's been really the the message that has gotten across to you this week, that Jesus is for you. He's not against you. That Jesus is your salvation. He is your forgiveness. He is your peace. He is everything that God desires to give to you. And God holds nothing back because he who pursues you with goodness and mercy will catch you. And when he catches you, you'll be in the arms of the Father, which is exactly where he wants you to be. Thank you for this week. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Uh, I thank God for you being here and for this chance to be able to spend these hours talking about the riches that are there for us in the Old Testament. Let me have a a prayer and then we'll wrap up. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that your goodness and your mercy pursue us. They chase us down and we find ourselves in the arms of the one who loved us enough to give his only begotten son that we might have life in him. All praise and glory be to you for all of your gifts to us. Now be with us today. Keep those of us who are traveling safe. Watch over us with your angels. Be with those who are remaining here. Continue to bless their time here in Ocean Grove. And above all, keep us ever in your Son through the power of your Spirit. And may our hearts ever cry out to you, Abba, Father, the one who has made us his children. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more about attending Bible study, worship, or additional programs offered by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, and for social media links, go to oceangrove.org.